The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. In our last study, we saw that there was no spark of the divine in any human being who has not been born again through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The statement of the scripture is definite and categorical. If any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, that teaching was more or less negative. The present text is not only positive, but very positive. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Righteousness Imputed. Someone has said that the gospel can be preached to any audience because the lost need to hear it and the saints love to hear it. The gospel tells the unsaved that they are lost sinners and cannot earn their salvation, but that God offers the free gift of eternal life by His grace. The good news also ensures God's people that although their sin still remains in them, they have received the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith and are safe forever. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Romans chapter 8 and verse 10. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Righteousness Imputed. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee that thou art the God of all grace, and in the midst of a world that crucified Christ, and that knows thee not, thou art patient and loving and tender toward those of the sons of men who come to put their trust in the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Wilt thou bless the truth as it goes forth in this hour, and use it to thine honor and thy glory, in building believers in the knowledge of the truth, and in bringing conviction to those who know thee not and who reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying together in the 8th chapter of Romans and come now to the 10th verse. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Our text consists of three statements. And rightly understood, they are positive statements of comfort, assurance, and certainty to the heart of the one who has been born again. The first statement, in its English form, might leave some room for doubt, because we are so accustomed to using the word if in a sense of possibility or uncertainty. 
The text is, and if Christ be in you. Now, we must never forget, however, that the word if is also used in a sense that carries great certainty with it. Let me tell a story concerning two men who work in a certain office. Both of them make telephone calls near the close of the day, and both of them tell their wives that they are going to be working overtime. A third man hears both conversations, and he's a man who knows the two men very well. The first man says on the telephone, I can't get home until late because I'm working overtime. The third man says, after the call is completed, if you are working overtime, they're going to miss you down at the poker game tonight. The first man laughs and winks, acknowledging that he has lied and that he's not going to work overtime. The sentence, if you are going to work overtime, means then, I do not believe you. Now, the second man says in the telephone call to his wife, I'm very sorry that I can't be home for dinner, but there is some extra work and I'll be working overtime quite late. The third man, who knows his upright character and honesty, says, well, if you're working overtime, you'll have a nice bit of extra pay at time and a half rates. Now, note well that the same phrase was used in both cases, if you are working overtime. The phrase as addressed to the first man clearly implied that he was a liar and was not believed. The phrase as addressed to the second man clearly implied that he was telling the truth and that he was believed. Now, it is in this latter sense that we must understand the if of our text. Paul is addressing men and women who have gone through the transforming experience that accompanies the work of God in the life of a man in whom the miracle of regeneration is being accomplished. In the opening verses of chapter 1 of this epistle, he tells the Romans that they are the called of Jesus Christ, beloved of God, saints. He thanks God that their faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. He told them that he wanted to come to Rome to see them, not in order to evangelize them, but to impart some spiritual gift to the end that he may be established. He expected to receive a great blessing through contact with them, even to the strengthening of his own faith by their strong faith. He calls them brethren. And if he announces that he is ready to preach the gospel to them, it's not in the sense of evangelizing them, but of proclaiming the glorious truths which strengthen the hearts of all true believers. Someone once remarked that the gospel could be preached to any audience because the saints love it and the sinners need it. But these were the saints and they were going to love what they heard, even as we who have been the objects of the Lord's wondrous grace are refreshed every time we hear the grand words of this greatest of all the epistles. So the opening phrase of our text might well be rendered, and because Christ is in you. Not if Christ, as though he doubts it, but since Christ is in you, because Christ is in you. The purpose of this section of the epistle is to give truth that will build and strengthen the believers in their certain position in Christ. They are to know by what they are hearing that in spite of the fact that there is inner conflict and that they are aware that they are not perfect, they are nevertheless alive in Christ. The coming of the Holy Spirit within them has given them a sense of holiness. And this has been disturbed by the knowledge that they are not filled with the absolute perfection of God, even though they do know that God has worked to work in them. And when they want to do unmixed, perfect good, evil is present with them. But they are to take heart. They are to look up. They are to be aware of their high position in Christ. And it is this knowledge that is going to be one of the major factors in their continuing growth. 
They will not take their eyes from the great central truths. They will not look within their own hearts, but instead will look at the facts of Christ as declared by God. Paul could have added at this point a verse which he had already written to the Corinthians. My speech and my preaching was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And it is in this spirit that he is addressing the Romans in this eighth chapter. Oh, there are times when we need to take hold of the word of God and to allow the spirit to speak to us until we are aware that the voice of God is like the sound of many waters. There are, of course, moments when only the still small voice of God can reach us. But there are moments when truth must be trumpeted to us. Perhaps this is always the case when we have been made aware of the presence of sin within us. We walk along in the Christian life and everything seems to be going satisfactorily. And then suddenly we discover that the old nature has taken some advantage of us. We are tempted to despair. And the cry of sorrow and anguish in our hearts may be so great that only a strong word from God can penetrate into the center of our need. When men are crouched to run a race in a stadium before a huge crowd of spectators, they cannot be started by a whisper. In our day, it is the shot of a pistol that sets them in motion. In the days of Paul, it was the clear sound of a trumpet. And thus he writes to the Hebrews. Therefore, surrounded as we are by such a vast cloud of witnesses, let us fling aside every encumbrance and the sin that so readily entangles our feet. And let us run with patient endurance the race that lies before us, simply fixing our gaze upon Jesus, the leader and perfecter of faith. I've given you this as Weymouth translates it. And our text in Romans 8 is the Olympic clarion, the starter's gun. We are not to stand and mope because we have discovered some imperfection within ourselves. We have a race to run. And we are called to go forward in the life that God has given us in Jesus Christ. On your mark, get set, go. Now in the context of the last 20 verses or so, there can be no doubt about it. Christ is in you. No matter what the test or the discouragement, look up. Christ is in you. From this, we can go on to the next certainty in our text. Christ is in you. Therefore, your body is dead because of sin. Nevertheless, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The RSV has followed Weymouth in the translation of this passage. The newer translation says, although your bodies are dead because of sin, your spirits are alive because of righteousness. Weymouth reads, though your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit has life because of righteousness. I might paraphrase it. And because Christ is in you, in spite of the fact that your body is death because of sin, your spirit is life because of righteousness. In spite of the fact that your body is death. Alas, we know only too well that we must join Paul in saying, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. This is a sad certainty, and yet it is a certainty. We must come face to face with it and acknowledge it if we are to go on to the triumphs that follow. Let me create an illustration that can show us the simplicity of the sad certainty 
that is followed by the glad certainty. Suppose that a great depression brings many men to the point of bankruptcy. They wish, of course, to keep themselves above the flood and to bring themselves out by their own efforts. Their natural pride wishes to keep them from the place where they must confess their failure and acknowledge the desperation of their circumstances. For the sake of our illustration, we will imagine a small town in Texas that is dominated by a man who has been fortunate enough to have discovered oil on his property and to have bought all of the oil leases in his neighborhood so that his fortune is a vast one running into the scores of millions of dollars. He announces that he will bring all of the businessmen of that small town out of their bankruptcy if they will simply write a letter acknowledging the certainty of their failure. He will then pay their debts and invest them with a new capital to start afresh in their business. Now, if there are men in the town who are proud to the point of insanity, they may refuse to bow before this offer from a kind benefactor. In that case, they remain insolvent and are forced to pay the penalties of their pride. But there are others who recognize that the man who makes the offer is a man who has known them for years and that he recognizes that his success is a matter that involves certain obligations and responsibilities and that he realizes that he holds certain values in trust. He wishes to help because of the generosity of his nature. They therefore determine to write to him and set before him the true nature of their plate and to avail themselves of the offer which he has made to them in free grace. Immediately, the local bank is instructed to take care of their needs, pay their debts, and grant them the credit which they need for the maintenance of their affairs. Now, it would be possible for someone to say to them, and because this friend has come to your aid, in spite of the fact that you are absolutely bankrupt, your situation is one of brilliant hope because of the grace that pays your debt and provides the capital which you need. Now, can you see that such a sentence is the paraphrase of our text? And because Christ is in you, that is because the friend has come to your aid, in spite of the fact that your body is death, in spite of the fact that you're absolutely bankrupt, your spirit is life because of righteousness. God has met all your debts and invested you with the capital stock of holiness. Now, I know in my own life that one of the most important factors in my continuing growth and blessing is that I am brought day by day to acknowledge freely before God my utter bankruptcy. In myself, I am nothing. I can do nothing for myself. I have no gift that can do more than provide for creature life and comfort. And God could take that away from me at any moment if he desired to do so. One little germ, invisible in a microscope, might take away my voice, my health, my strength so that my very life, moment by moment, depends on him. If then I am to have any blessing, it must come to me, moment by moment, from the flowing stream of grace which begins at Calvary and comes to me because of the love of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that I can say that by now, I have gone through this fact with God on so many occasions that it can be established as a fact between him and myself in the flash of a second. What once was a long struggle, marked in every part by my own efforts to do something for myself and for others, has now come to the place of a divine peace and a settled relationship that is such that it gives God all the glory and removes any part of that glory from me. As I approach God, I no longer make any attempt to hold my hands in front of my spiritual nakedness, but I come just as I am, realizing that he now looks at me through Jesus Christ.
Perhaps some of you have seen some of the cartoons that have appeared in the New Yorker, drawn by an artist who portrays a scene and then draws a, a bubble, a balloon above the head of one of the characters in order to show what the individual is really thinking. I believe that the series is called The Naked Eye. I remember one cartoon where a garage mechanic was looking at a remarkably beautiful girl who was driving a sports convertible car. But the balloon which the artist had drawn above the mechanic's head did not show uh, that this dream girl was clad in a bathing suit, but rather that his dream revealed the chassis of the automobile, stripped of its body and showing its powerful engine. Now, if I may use this technique to show how the believer must stand before God and how God regards the believer, it'll be something like this. I approach the Lord and I stand in his presence. Now, if you draw the cartoonist's balloon above my head and discover my thoughts, you will find that it is an acknowledgement of the truth which God reveals to me about myself as set forth in every part of the word and as summed up in the great statement in the epistle of the Hebrews, which describes the spiritual nudity of every individual. Thus, I stand before God. There in Hebrews, I read that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it discerns the secret thoughts and purposes of the heart. And my thought about myself is made clear as I acknowledge the truth of the next verse and put myself into it. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now this must be our inner thought as we approach our God. All things lie bare and exposed to his gaze. There is no need to attempt any camouflage. His holy gaze can penetrate any subterfuge which we might attempt to create. Must we not rather accept the facts as they are and acknowledge our own nothingness? Or, as our text in Romans has it, admit that our body is death because of sin, that there is nothing within us that can bring power or help to us, and that we stand accepting our bankrupt position in every phase of life and being. And I believe also that it's possible with the greatest reverence to extend this illustration from the cartoonist and discover to our great joy what the eye of God truly sees as he looks upon us. Oh, it's true that he beholds the nakedness of the man who stands before him in pride, and if any man approaches God with any thought that there is worth within himself, then the thought of God toward him must be one of wrath, because the flimsy creature is not willing to admit the truth of his creaturehood and accept all the truth of God about what man is by nature. But when one approaches God, as I have described my own approach to God, then God must see me through Christ. He must look upon me, not as I am in myself, but as I am in my Savior. Oh, it is difficult to restrain a shout of praise as we present such a truth. I can understand the glad, swelling cries of some Christians when they come to the realization that the Lord looks upon them through Christ. And though layers of culture and civilization and layers of education may put restraints upon some of us, which would keep us from too much outward manifestations in the sight of men, yet the heart is moving with shouts of joy 
as we know what the Lord has accomplished for us in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For in his word, he has revealed to us that when he looks upon the sinner who accepts his own bankruptcy and puts his trust in Christ, he, God, no longer sees the sinful nature of that individual, but counts him as having had all of his sin removed forever and as having been made the very righteousness of God in Christ. I dare to stand and say that the word of God teaches that God can see no flaw in a Christian, no matter what the stage of the individual's spiritual development. Oh, do not misunderstand. Our God has become our father and is training us as children. He knows every faintest imperfection that is within us, but he's working out his divine purpose, forming Christ in us, that we might be conformed to the image of his son. And since he is in eternity and not in time, he can see the end as being already accomplished. And he is able to announce that the spirit is life because of righteousness. Thus, though God may look at me and see me as I am in myself in the matter of discipline, yet in the matter of position, he sees me as I am in Christ. And although the body is death because of sin, my spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, after so many expositions on the earlier verses of this epistle, it should not be necessary to show that the righteousness, which is the cause of this remarkable viewpoint of God, is not the righteousness of man, nor has it anything to do with human righteousness. This is God's own righteousness, imputed to us and imparted to us. When the Christian understands this, his whole outlook on life and death, time and eternity is changed. He no longer looks upon men according to what he sees in them, but tries to look upon them as God sees them. For all who still cling to the filthy rags of their own righteousness, he has the profoundest and tenderest pity. For all who have bowed before God and come to him through Christ, the believer has the most exulting joy. God has done his work completely. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And if Christ be in any man, then it is because God has looked upon him through his son. And admitting that the human nature is the deathly nature of Adam, has taken that nature and put it upon the cross, creating new life within by the power of his redeeming love, looking upon us in the resurrection of Christ as having come forth from the grave with our Lord. Therefore, we have been made alive in Christ and our spirits, our human spirits are life because of that divine righteousness. It is the understanding of this truth that is the foundation for all that follows. The Holy Spirit is about to tell us in the verses that come that we are no longer debtors to the flesh, but that we must live after the Spirit and that our lives must show forth the praise that must spring from the heart of the one who has seen this glorious truth. God's desire for us is that we shall begin to live the life of eternity while we are still in time. This is the true meaning of eternal life. It is God's life. It is to be lived in me forever, and it must begin to have its sway now. The more I understand this truth and yield to it, the more holy my life shall become. And in that holiness, there will be fullness of joy. In understanding what we have just seen, we shall come to realize that anything that rises from the body and its death is ultimately not good. 
but that all that comes to us from God in Christ is all good. We must learn to look away from the distortion mirrors of life and to consider things not as they appear to the mind and eye of the flesh, but as they are in Christ. Then we shall know that as we yield to the utter perfection of God in Christ, living his life within us, we shall enter into the highest fruits of that perfection, moving towards him day by day in that path of the justified one, which must ever shine brighter and brighter until we see him who is light and in whom dwelleth no darkness at all. And our God and Father, we ask thee to bless the truth to each heart and to use it to thy glory. If there be those who do not believe, give them restlessness till they come to rest in Christ. But upon all thy believing own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now till our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. When we admit our spiritual bankruptcy and trust in Christ for salvation, His righteousness is both imputed and imparted to us. God reckons all of the redeemed as perfect in Christ forever. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Righteousness Imputed. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting us online at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled Righteousness Imputed or simply ask for message number R8-15. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled How God Saves Men. A Latin poet once said that there were as many opinions as there were men. You can find a wide variety of ideas about salvation even among Christians. This free booklet clears up the confusion by setting forth God's Word about how He saves people. You will understand God's grace, love, and power in salvation as you read about faith, God's part in salvation, how God does not save men, and God's workmanship. Ask for your free copy of How God Saves Men when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.